Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of History Written by the Losers. I'm Annika. And I'm Sudha. We had to take a quick break in December, but we are now back and better than ever in 2022 with a new episode. So today we're going to be talking about school curricula. So we were thinking about and researching how it came about that we started teaching a more or less standardized curriculum to the children in this country. And the evolution of this curriculum development in schools actually reflects the evolution of knowledge and civilization itself. So I guess the question that any curriculum maker has to ask themselves is, A, what is the content of what I'm going to teach or you know, send forth to the next generation? How should I structure it? What are the events or the important things that belong in the curriculum? And if, you know, we are teaching a controversial topic, what, you know, are we going to present both sides of it? Or is there only one true way to look at this that history has justified? Um, And how do we design these experiences so that it leads to productive learning that sticks in the minds of the students, right? Yeah, and this idea has kind of been at the base of our podcast since it was started. We started out with this idea that history is usually taught by the victors, right? It's taught by the people who win the wars, the people who control the narrative. And we started this podcast to attempt to rewrite that history or at least view it from a different perspective than what is traditionally shown. But as we discuss the evolution of curriculums, we'll see very often that that narrative was controlled by the victors and therefore a lot of the things that are taught in schools maybe haven't been as representative of the true history as they should have been. Right, so while there is evidence for formalized teaching of children in almost every civilization on earth, the Western mode of uh, curricula making and schooling starts in the 17th century. Uh, Of course, the norm at that time was not uh, that education was a requirement. In fact, education was a dream for many people at that time. There were so many chores and tasks that required children to be part of that agrarian society where they had to help support the family that there was no thinking that these children should be in school during the daytime. Yeah, so in the U.S., the main purpose of education at that time was for a Puritan society to teach children how to read the Bible and how to align themselves with certain morals. So once the population of the settlers in the United States started to grow, each colony was required to have at least one school to teach students academics, but these schools mainly focused on educating the wealthier populations in the colonies. And the earliest schools started with endowments like Harvard, which was established as the first college in 1636. It took a century after that for the first academy for girls to be established in 1787. Yeah, but then beginning in the 1800s, the philosophy of how to structure curricula shifted from religious-based education to more government-sponsored education, and that helped bring in a new era of public schooling within the U.S. 
1867, the Department of Education was established in the U.S. and with some donations from big philanthropists, the public education system was advanced and more colleges were established, more grade schools were established, and child labor laws were also passed to ensure that more children were being educated as well. Right. By the 1920s, it became more commonplace for U.S.-born children to be educated in schools and Even though college education was still not the norm, there were more and more colleges opening up as children transitioned from working in factories to attending public school. The Association of American Universities was also created in the 20s. So as we discuss this early education, early curricula, we'd also like to note that many other countries in the world had educational systems that were developed as well. And... We're primarily focusing on the U.S. education system for this episode, but but in other places around the world, there were educational systems that developed for children, and a lot of times when colonized, these educational systems were spoken over and rewritten by the mother countries who had established themselves there. So a lot of countries have actually lost a lot of ancient teachings because of colonization as well. So we wanted to mention that too. Right. But coming back to what was being taught in public schools in the 1920s, it is safe to say that the story of the education in this country parallels the cycles of uncertainty and political upheaval that was going on in the country at the time. Yeah, and that's perhaps one of the biggest lessons about curricula is that they kind of reflect the political turmoil of that time. And, I mean, we can see that even now. But going back to that point in time in the U.S.'s history, like for the Civil War, for example, when northern and southern states were fighting, the curriculums during that time were framed basically from the perspective of where you lived. And... Donald Yakovone, an associate at the Hutton Center for African and African American Research at Harvard, points out that one late 19th century textbook framed the war as a battle between the monarchical northern states and the south, which seceded from the Union to preserve true democracy. So obviously these stories are and these curriculums are being affected by what the, what the where, where you were and what the people in power were saying at that time. Right. And in one of our previous episodes, we have kind of talked about in great detail as to how the history of World War II was taught in the countries that lost, like Germany and Japan, and how teaching the children in schools a modified version of history made their losses more palatable to them. And there were even groups like the United Daughters of the Confederacy in the Civil War that were advocating to change what was talked about in textbooks. They were protesting for the, quote, long-legged Yankee lies to be removed from textbooks and to advocate about their beliefs and the lost cause and states' rights and minimize the role of slavery in that war and how it was taught to make it more palatable, as you said. So moving forward into the 20th century, there were some more egregious examples of how curricula was manipulated to make it more agreeable to those in power. For example, in the archives of the textbook publisher American Book Company, 
found letters revealing a conversation in 1917 during World War I about whether to remove the Declaration of Independence from a textbook on the history of the United States so as to foster no animosity against our ally England. So during World War I, the U.S. was actually considering removing information about the Revolutionary War to prevent any sort of tension between the U.S. and England while they're fighting on the same side. And I mean, obviously, that's an extreme example, but it is quite interesting to see what some of the it, things that were considered. Well, it could have happened, but the company ultimately decided that that would be going too far. However, in 1918, the New York State Legislature passed a law banning public schools from teaching textbooks containing material that was seditious in character, disloyal to the United States, or favorable to the cause of any foreign country with which the United States was now at war. Yeah, so obviously some things weren't deemed too far, and I think this is a common trend for a lot of wartime decisions about curricula, which is that because it was a total war, they wanted to make sure that everybody on the home front was completely united behind this decision. And we've mentioned in the past stuff like the Japanese internment and the Red Scare and all of that, other ways in which the U.S. attempted to prevent any disloyal people from speaking out and to help everyone stay on the same narrative and that bleeds into education as well right so the anxiety about whatever was going on at the time politically would always bleed into almost like a kind of um, psychosis where they would be like let's teach the children our point of view so that we can brainwash them into believing what we want them to believe Another example was a controversy that emerged over a popular series of school books in the late 1930s and early 1940s. All these books were asking children to consider was if the United States was living up to its founding ideals. However, because it was published during the Great Depression, the series was seen as anti-capitalist and the schools had to withdraw the series after there was huge negative press coverage and there was pressure from the American Legion accusing this uh, series of school book publishers of printing treason. Yeah, and that tension over questioning whether we are living up to our founding ideals, that has been a conversation that's been going on for a while. In the 1920s, there was a controversy over textbooks who were not speaking completely admirably over the founding fathers and talked about the ways in which they established the union and maybe not the best light and that caused a lot of controversy and that has continued well past then even into modern day. So questioning the foundation of America and questioning the unity of America especially during wartime those are some of the major things that cause a lot of tension with respect to curriculums. What I want to highlight from all of this is that what we teach children in schools, especially if there is a sort of unified national curriculum, this can become a huge tool in the hands of uh, people because it influences an entire generation of school-going children into thinking a certain way. So if you look at a lot of the uh, movements that are there in America right now, like, you know, the homeschooling, religious schooling, at the bottom of many of these issues is this fear that we don't want our children 
to learn something that is not in keeping with our value system or ideals. Yet, the very purpose of education is to broaden the mind and learn to look at things from various points of view and then come to a conclusion on our own. And we are not affording our children that opportunity by being so restrictive on curricula. Learning happens everywhere and schools have libraries that stock books. And so schools have also been dragged into controversies regarding banned books. Right. So let's look next at a few of these banned books controversies that have plagued American schools. So the story of the first banned book in America starts in 1624. English businessman Thomas Morton had arrived in Massachusetts with a group of Puritans, but he soon realized that he didn't want to abide by their strict values and he didn't want to stay in that area. So he left and he established his own colony. Because of this, he was eventually exiled by the Puritan militia, and obviously incensed at this, he filed a lawsuit, but he also wrote a book from his account. His book was called The New English Canaan, and it was published in 1637. He critiqued Puritan customs in it, and it was so harsh that even more progressive New England settlers disapproved of it. So the Puritans banned it, and that makes it likely to be the first banned book in the U.S. Other banned books around the same time period were John Eliot's The Christian Commonwealth and William Pinchon's The Meritorious Price of Our Redemption. In recent years, though, there have been a lot more popular books that were banned in schools. The Harry Potter series was banned for depicting magic and witchcraft. The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein was banned because it was considered sexist. The young boy was continually taking from the female tree without ever giving anything in return. <laughs> and some of these uh, explanations actually are quite interesting. The Lorax by Dr. Seuss was banned because it was believed to portray logging in a bad light which upset loggers. Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh was banned because it encouraged children to disrespect their parents. And they believe she would be a bad influence on young readers. And Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak was also banned because people believed it to be psychologically damaging and traumatizing to young children, as well as because it contained supernatural elements. James and the Giant Peach by Dahl was banned because it was too scary for its targeted age group uh, and it promoted disobedience. And needless to say, many of these books have gone on to become beloved childhood books. It's actually quite interesting how many famous books have been banned and uh, probably one of your favorite books has been banned at one point by one place. But in 1982, the Island Tree School District versus Pico court case helped the Supreme Court rule that school officials could not ban books solely based on their content. And that helped limit how many books were banned. But obviously there is still tension over the contents of some books today. Of course, there are lots of books in the world that are too mature or too challenging or not appropriate for young readers. And people should always take that with caution. Which is why... Most schools have librarians. But um, the conversation over banned books is sort of a conversation over censorship and how much power a school should have over what 
its pupils can read and what its pupils can learn. And that is very similar to the conversation about curriculums. True. Moving from banned books to what is now become more of a modern day problem, which is revisionist history and how history is taught in schools. Um, the culture wars of the 1990 fueled a big controversy about the national history standards. Now, the national history standards were established as a set of federally funded historian developed guidelines about how to teach American and world history in K-12 standards. And these aimed to include uh, more information about the contributions of black people, American Indians and women in the curriculum. But in a 1994 Wall Street Journal editorial uh, headlined The End of History, Lynn Cheney, who was at the time the chair of the National Endowment of Humanities under Presidents Reagan and Bush, expressed outrage that the framework mentioned McCarthy and McCarthyism 19 times and Harriet Tubman six times while mentioning President Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address only once and not mentioning Paul Revere, Robert E. Lee, Thomas Edison, and Albert Einstein. The editorial also quoted an unnamed member of the group overseeing the draft of the standards, accusing the writers of promoting revisionist history. So there was a lot of conflict over these standards. So reflecting on that controversy more than 25 years later, UCLA historian Gary Nash points out that the traditional history that critics championed back then was U.S. history with women largely absent from the story and African-Americans reduced to a political issue where Northerners and Southerners fought about state rights. So those standards were actually attempting to include more of the narrative of the quote-unquote losers, like we say. But as with any sort of change in curricula, there was a large backlash. But there was a similar backlash that repeated itself again uh, more recently when the AP U.S. history curriculum came up and um, it was extremely controversial for similar reasons. That's right. And of course, we cannot have this conversation without mentioning the 1619 Project, which aimed to reframe the country's origins around the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in Virginia. It faced a lot of pushback, and while it was only proposed for implementation in um, schools if they wished to, it still was um, largely criticized for the way that it reframed the history. And very recently, there's also been a lot of conflict over the teaching of critical race theory in schools. But one of the most significant di disagreements about that is whether or not it's even taught in schools. Critical race theory is an academic concept, and the, its core idea is that race is a social construct and that racism is not just about individual bias, but also it's embedded into legal systems and structures and policies. It was developed in the 1970s and 1980s, and it highlights things like redlining and um, other racially biased policies to highlight its core tenets. And whether or not critical race theory should be embraced is one conversation, but the main conversation over it is about its implementation in school curriculas. But 
in modern dialogue, it's kind of been used as a synonym for more inclusive education rather than what it actually is as a concept. So a lot of people have criticized it, not knowing that they were criticizing a specific academic theory and more largely criticizing the idea of changing the way traditional history has been taught for so long. So they mainly oppose the idea of teaching it in schools because they feel that white children who would identify themselves with the oppressor category then would suffer some shared guilt or feelings of being on the wrong side of history for no fault of their own. And while that is a valid concern for parents who are in that situation, completely ignoring and not acknowledging the harms that were done to uh, non-white people in this country makes the other children in the classroom invisible. So there are points to be you know, said for both sides of this controversy, and that is not something that I usually say on this podcast. But what you're saying is very true, but that's not actually about critical race theory. It's more about just more inclusive education as a whole, because scholars say that most of the writing on critical race theory is mainly in academic language and published in academic journals, and it's not really accessible to K-12 teachers or students. True. So I would be surprised if there are many schools that teach critical race theory or actually have any sort of awareness as to what critical race theory is, if there are any students, I should say. But But uh, these parents who are lining up at school board meetings are worried that there would be a curriculum that would be developed that would be at the level of K to 12, which would promote these ideas that imply that injustice was being done to a group of children who really had nothing to do with it. So but what, at the core of history, why why we teach history is that so that we don't repeat the mistakes. Yeah. And if we don't even know about the mistakes our ancestors made, then there is no point in teaching a sanitized version of history. So one of the biggest things that we've seen in the attempted establishment of these curriculums is this push and pull over whether we're teaching unity or whether we're teaching diversity or if we can strike a balance between the two, right? Because during wartime, like we mentioned, uh, our country wanted to depict this unified front, and that meant, you know, weeding out the outcasts and keeping everybody on the same page. But that also leads to the isolation of certain groups of people, and that also leads to people questioning where they fit into that unified narrative. And so there have been a lot of attempts recently to implement more diversity into that traditional history, quote-unquote, but there's still obviously a lot of conflict over that. Even if what is taught in schools is taught in the best possible way, people are always still influenced by other factors as well. But, I mean, it's undeniable the influence that an educational curriculum has on the fostering of young minds and, you know, how they grow and develop and interact with the rest of the world. The general consensus among Americans, according to a Pew Research Center poll, is that it makes the U.S. stronger when we acknowledge the country's historical flaws. 71% of registered voters agreed with that statement. So, 
in a democratic society, we should be doing our best always to look at history from the most holistic lens we can and look at it from viewpoints that are not our own. Look at it from viewpoints of the minority communities and of the majority communities and of the oppressed and the oppressors, but um, look at history as holistically as possible. Right. And the lens of history may make some facts distorted over time. And the purpose of having historical research is to make that mirror as clear as possible so that we can convey the facts of the past accurately to the next generation. So overall, yes, educational curriculas are very important and they play a large role in the fostering of young minds. So as long as historical research is valued, these curriculas and these histories will always be changing, they will always be evolving, and they will always be revisionist because we will always have something to revise, something to add, and some more history written by the losers to include. Thank you all so much for listening to History Written by the Losers. Our 2022 resolution is to continue learning and growing alongside all of you, so we hope you will stick with us for this journey. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram at History Written by the Losers and on Twitter and TikTok at History Losers for more updates. And we will see you next month for another episode of History Written by the, the Losers. losers.